you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. It's been talked about and lobbied for in Sacramento for years by Democrats and Republicans, rural and urban. So if this is one of the things they agree on, why can't they hook up universal broadband all throughout California, from the redwoods to the Joshua trees and everywhere in between? Find out why that connection could be coming soon ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Coming up. These technologies are all reliant on federal grants, federal loans to scale up the research and development needed. The ideas and the tools are out there to help us combat climate change. They're just looking for the money. The future of carbon vacuums. That's right, carbon vacuums just ahead. But first, if one thing became clear during the pandemic, it's that the digital divide in this country is worse than we thought. From Zoom classrooms to signing up online for vaccine appointments, access to affordable high-speed internet has become a necessity. Expanding that access has long been a cause that California lawmakers have supported, but so far little has been done. Now this year, though, could be the year that legislation gets put on the table and signed. For more on this, we turn to Ben Christopher, political reporter for the online news site Cal Matters. Now your colleagues at Cal Matters, Jackie Potts and uh, Ricardo Cano, recently recently published a report looking at the disparities in broadband access, Ben, specifically focusing on students. So what did they see as the biggest barriers to high-speed internet access? Yeah, so Jackie and Ricardo, they they took data from California's telecom regulators and they, they kind of mapped it across uh, virtually every neighborhood in the state to see how internet availability varies across the different um, K through 12 school areas. And, and it, it, even if it was available, how many people were actually signed up? Because that's, that's another issue. It's one thing to have it available. It's another thing to actually sign up for it. And then what they found is not at all surprising, but still uh, very troubling, which is that the areas where kids mostly come from affluent families are very well connected and kids going to school in poor neighborhoods, uh, not so much. And the main barrier that they found was actually not availability per se, not that the infrastructure wasn't there, but it was just cost, um, at least reported by these families. And, and these two things aren't unrelated in places where there are uh, few internet options, the cost can definitely be higher. But even in very densely populated urban areas where there's tons of internet infrastructure, lots of wires and transmitters, a lot of households uh, just didn't connect because they they can't, they say they couldn't, couldn't afford it. And, um, and, and, and like you said, internet access is, is important even when we aren't in the middle of a global pandemic. But once schools started going remote, that disparity really did help uh, create this kind of two-tiered education system, or, or, or maybe I should say that the two-tiered education system that yeah. we already have was even more unequal. And that, yeah, that lack of a clear connection became very clear, no pun intended, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you can make uh, right. life difficult right. for students to participate in Zoom class. So what other kind of negative impacts can this have on families? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, even before the pandemic, the internet really has been this essential service for, for many of us, maybe most of us. And, you know, once school was online, um, once it became harder for, you know, or, or more dangerous to do your shopping, uh, to get government services or sign up for unemployment, it, you know, it's this huge uh, barrier if you don't have access to high speed or, or even reliable internet. It can mean the difference between, like you said, securing a vaccine appointment or not, which was obviously quite a challenge, uh, you know, just just in the last few months, and and all the more so if you don't have an internet connection, if you're trying to apply for a job, and then of course if you're trying to go to school and your internet connection is constantly cutting off, that that makes for a very disruptive disrupted uh, education experience. Yeah, but you know, I, I knew some people that were living in apartments, very densely packed apartments that didn't want to leave their apartment because, you know, they had to go to the elevator or they had to walk down a flight of stairs mm-hmm. and they had to meet people. Think about if they could have the internet access to get their stuff delivered, get their groceries delivered, what that could have saved in, in infection rates. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that this, uh, this really is impacting a lot of people. Now, a lot of money, though, potentially being thrown at this issue on the state and federal levels. But how much, Ben, is it going to cost uh, to build out the infrastructure to provide every single underconnected California with high-speed Internet? Hmm. Yeah, so actually the, the California Public Utility Commission, which is the body that regulates Internet providers, they did commission a study about just this question last year. And they estimate that building out just all the wires necessary to get high-speed Internet infrastructure to everyone who needs it at fairly high speeds um, would cost about $6.8 billion, mm-hmm. which is obviously a very big number, though it's a lot lower than a lot of people I think expected. That is one estimate and cost estimates for, for infrastructure projects are, all, you know, they should always be taken with a grain of salt, particularly in California. You look, look at the bullet yeah. train. But, um, but given that the state is sitting on so much extra money right now, both from its own revenue sources, but also the federal government, um, I think that number has really been uh, put forward by a lot of proponents that that this is the time to go big because we have the money and uh, it's a it's a worthwhile investment. Yeah. So if that money though comes through, Ben, what else is needed to solve the issue? Yeah. So so money is a big part of it. You know, in some cases, particularly in in rural areas, they're not exclusively. The limiting factor here really is the infrastructure. There aren't the wires or transmitters in place, and that is because particularly in really sparsely populated areas, often low income areas, it just doesn't pencil out for these private companies, internet service providers, you know, whether it's Charter or Comcast or AT&T or, Charter or, or Cox, uh, it just doesn't make sense to, to build out that infrastructure to those communities. It's not profitable, at least not in, in the very short term. And so there are programs in place at the state level to try and subsidize that work. And so there are a couple of proposals right now to dump more money into these programs. But there are also all these sort of maybe broader and more radical questions about, you know, whether you want to empower or fund public sector entities to, to try and pro- provide uh, broadband directly or to build out the infrastructure themselves or to try and, you know, regulate the companies in such a way that would sort of require them to, to provide uh, these services in a more universal way rather than just providing it to sort of rich neighborhoods and skirting around the poor ones or, or something like that. And so, you know, in, in some ways this kind of gets you know, the money aside, it gets into this broader tension or this broader debate about how people and legislators think about what broadband yeah. is. Is it a a commodity that, you know, that, that we should just leave to the private sector or is it something like electricity or like water, water that the yeah. government really needs to play a more proactive role in providing? Yeah. And we still haven't figured that out, or at least they haven't figured that out yet, exactly how they're going to classify <laughs> the internet or broadband. Yes, I mean, it, it, I think in some ways, you know, when we're we're looking at now twenty bills that that address broadband in some way, whether it's looking at providing infrastructure or providing, uh, you know, subsidies for for people to get cheaper plans, or whether it's looking at regulations on how to lay, you know, make it easier to lay some of the infrastructure down. You know, it's all kind of skirting around this broad question as as a society, and in some ways, it it really kind of harkens back to the nineteen thirties when the country was going through another yeah. cataclysmic crisis with the depression and the thought was well let's get rural electrification out to uh areas that, that don't have a service that for a long time was thought of as maybe a luxury but is really um increasingly be, being seen as uh, an impediment to you know, economic opportunity and, and we're kind of having that same debate now with the internet really quick tell us about uh, the bill that democratic assembly member al mulitsachi is working on from torrance 
Yeah, so this is one of the more high-profile uh, proposals, definitely the one with the highest uh, price tag. Um, Assemblyman Morosuchi wants to, to put a $10 billion bond on the 2022 ballot, so that's <laughs> next year. Um, and, and so $10 billion, obviously a, a huge chunk of change, but maybe even more importantly is that that money would go towards public schools and city governments and, and county governments and basically giving the public sector the money to invest in publicly managed broadband rather than just leaving it to the private sector or subsidizing the private sector to do so. So it's 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 sort of a radical proposal, not just because it's such a, a huge amount of money, but also because it would kind of change the way that, uh, that, 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 that broadband is provided. You already do see some isolated school districts providing, getting into the, sort of the ISP business, yeah. so to speak, but this would really ramp that up in a pretty dramatic way. We're talking to Ben Christopher, Cal Matters. Since uh, we were talking about California's digital divide, Ben, we thought we'd ask you about another story that you posted on the effort to uh, fight back against the Gavin Newsom recall, which coincidentally started on Zoom, so we figured the tie-in is right there. Um, <laughs> so how did the California Democratic Party get the ball rolling on that? Yeah, so this last weekend was the California Democratic Party's uh, regularly scheduled convention. It was actually pretty well-timed because the uh, signatures needed to put the recall on the ballot just happened last week. And so, you know, having a convention just a week later uh, is sort of a, a good opportunity uh, to get everyone on the same page if you're a Democrat, so to speak. It was, in some ways, because it was all on Zoom, it did feel kind of like a four-day infomercial. But, um, you know, basically an opportunity for, for Democrats to come from around the state and and in some cases around the country to, to, to get on the same page and, and say, like, we're all firmly against the recall and we're all for... Governor Newsom. And strategically, that makes a lot of sense because as long as the recall race is, is just a bunch of Republicans going against Newsom in California, where Democratic voters tend to outnumber Republican voters by two to one, uh, that, that means that Newsom is, is in pretty safe terrain. It's it's if a Democrat, particularly a high profile yeah. Democrat, comes out and gets in the race and challenges Newsom either directly or just kind of runs as a, an insurance policy, which is something we saw in 2003, that could really mess with the governor's plans and his messaging. And so, um, Again, I think that the Democratic Party convention was an opportunity to just get everyone on the same page. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the convention did have a, a star-studded lineup. Pelosi, Harris, Barbara Lee, Alex Padilla, Shirley Weber, Rob mm -hmm. Bonta. Um, ben, who was this messaging for, Ben? Because was it disillusioned Democrats who signed the recall petition, or was it maybe small business owners who've been hurt mm -hmm. by Gavin Newsom's COVID restrictions? Who was this for? It's a good question. I think you know the convention itself is is really uh, directed at at Democrats because unless you're a, a hardcore registered Democrat or a or a political reporter, you're not really paying attention to this. But and and so it really was that the messaging was you know, for, fight back against the partisan power grab. That's the term they use. Like, partisan. No, it wasn't like, uh, like California coup or anything like that from from january <laughs> yeah they, they the party chair tried to roll that one out last january it didn't go over super well because this was right after january 6th which uh right w was a real <laughs> good attempt in some respects and so this was you know a lot of people pointed out like a recall you might not like it but it is part of the state constitution it's not illegal or violent but yeah they seem to have settled on partisan power grab okay. uh, at least to the convention although i will say when the governor is outside of these conventions, he is kind of taking a softer approach. Last week, he went down to the Valley and, and, and signed a tax relief bill for small businesses at a restaurant run by the son of, of, of immigrants from Mexico. And the actor, Danny Trejo, was there. And it was just kind of, it, to be clear, it was not billed as a campaign rally. And the governor yeah. did not say anything directly. But, uh, or, you know, didn't make it about, about the recall specifically. But it certainly served this political purpose, reaching out to Latino voters, reaching out to small business owners. You might be on the fence and just kind of letting them know that they're still there. Yeah. I was thinking about partisan power grab PPG is a good, I mean, I, you could, you could do all kinds of things <laughs> if you wanted to, you know, make it something that sticks in people's heads. You mentioned Newsom went to the Valley, Northeast San Fernando Valley. Why, why did he go there? Did he think that maybe he's uh, having a tough time with Latino votes? Yeah, I think there are some concerns that Latino voters um, might uh, not come out in support of Newsom uh, in in the, the numbers that they'll need, or they, they might affect. Uh, you know, there there's been a little polling to suggest that their enthusiasm behind the governor is not quite so high. Obviously, we're still a long ways out, but they are doing everything they can to to sort of shore up that support because it's not just about um, you know changing people's minds; it's making sure that people actually come out to vote 
particularly during an off year where you you don't see as, as high turnout. So, so Newsom is just doing everything he can to make sure that people are not only um, on his side, but enthusiastically so. All right, that's uh, political reporter Ben Christopher of the online news site Cal Matters. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you so much. California and the Biden administration have outlined some aggressive climate goals. Things such as electric vehicles, along with solar and wind energy, will help reduce carbon emissions. But considering that those aggressive goals have very short timelines, how will they be achieved? Well, it may be time to bust out the big vacuum cleaners. Yeah, suck the carbon right out of the sky. Find out how when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Parole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. In Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So, we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Smartphones are always buzzing with alerts, but one notification could actually save your life. For the first time, the earthquake early warning system, ShakeAlert, can send phone notifications up and down the entire West Coast. For more on what this means for surviving the big one, we have the ShakeAlert's communications coordinator with the U.S. Geological Survey, Robert DeGroote. Robert, uh, can you first remind us how the ShakeAlert system works? Do you have to download a special app to receive the notifications, and, and, and what do the notifications look like? In California, there are four ways to receive alerts, and uh, two of them are are pretty automatic. One of them is through the Wireless Emergency Alert System, or otherwise known as WIA. It's the same system that delivers AMBER alerts, and you can get those alerts just by having your emergency alerts set up on your phone. And then uh, the other one is if you happen to have an Android-powered phone, um, in the new operating system, you actually have the ability to uh, get alerts through through that through their operating system, and then there are two apps that are available, mm-hmm. and one of them is MyShake out of UC Berkeley, which can be downloaded from the from the respective store, and then also something called Quake Alert USA from Early Warning Labs, actually based here in Southern California. And is it really loud, like those emergency alerts that that kind of just pierce your ears? The different deliveries have different sounds. Okay. The, the, the WIA sound is just like an Amber Alert, and we're actually working on developing a new sound that specifically will be identified with earthquakes yeah. because if you can just hear the sound and do something, that actually speeds up the time that you can actually do something. Like Pavlov's dog in a way, right? Exactly. The idea is muscle memory, right? Practice, 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 like tying your shoe, just do it, right? Yeah, when we hear that specific sound, we do a specific thing. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Robert, how much warning might the alert system give, and what kind of a difference can that margin of time make? Well, taking protective action such as drop, cover, and hold on takes just a few seconds. And right now, we're really trained to do this, just like when one does the great, great shakeout earthquake drill, you feel shaking and you drop, cover, and hold on. 
um, the shake alert system allows you to get an alert that will hopefully motivate you to, to take that same action. So we want people to react to the sound or to the shaking. Now, as far as how much time one might get, it all depends on, well, actually a couple of things. One is how far you're away from the epicenter of the earthquake. And another one is how you get the alert itself. Um, even the idea that if you get the alert, just as shaking is beginning, at least it tells you what's going on and you can still take that protective action. There was an earthquake in Southern California back in September of 2020 uh, that was uh, epicenter was out in South El Monte. Uh, I live in West Los Angeles and I actually got the alert just as the shaking oh, wow. began, but I knew exactly what to do. People farther away likely got at least a second, but that's even a sec every second yeah. matters. Yep. Absolutely. So. You can duck under something or yeah, just brace yourself. Even that, that even exactly. would make a difference. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now getting to the latest news, uh, Robert, tell us where along the West Coast is uh, now incorporated into the earthquake early warning system and why is that kind of coordinated coverage important? So today's a big day for us because we, since October of 2019, uh, we worked very closely with the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services to roll out this type of alerting uh, to, to cell phones uh, in California. Uh, Oregon followed just in March, on March 11th of 2021, and now Washington joins the fold today uh, on May 4th. And so now the entire West Coast now can get uh, alerts delivered to, to cell phones. Uh, in California and Oregon, uh, we have four choices through, uh, through, the, through, through Google, through um, the wireless emergency alert system, and two apps that I mentioned. Why, um, why 15 years, Robert, that it took that long? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Well, there are a lot of pieces that had to come together. One of them, of course, is that we needed to upgrade our seismic networks to be able to, to pass information very, very quickly from one place to mm -hmm. another. So that required a lot of upgrades. There's also the processing that goes on. It's, you know, once the information gets sent to the, to the brains, the under the hood stuff, it's got to calculate that information super quickly and then make that information available to people who can actually deliver alerts to phones or to, de to devices. And so that required quite a bit of time. But then there's also this piece about the human element um, humans interact with the shake alert system. So we needed to develop all of those pieces so human beings could use the system effectively. One more thing, Robert, really quick. What needs to happen next to really make the earthquake early warning system as thorough and effective as possible? So really, really fast. I think one thing that we need is that we need to continue to build out um, and diversify the number of ways that people can get alerts, not only to their phones, but through other devices or through other systems. And we are embarking on a long-term project to, to build out the system and get it happening in all kinds of places. So that's where we're going. All right, Robert, you got me thinking about what sound I would react to the most if I got that through my phone <laughs> to jump under a desk or something like that. I got to I got to keep noodling on that one. Robert uh, DeGroote, he's the Shakes Alert uh, Communications Coordinator with the U.S. Geological Survey. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. All right, now let's talk about giant carbon vacuums. I mean, yeah, what is that, Yes, We're talking about industrial-scale carbon removal, and given the climate emergency we face, such a thing might be up for consideration in California. Here to explain is LA Times national reporter Evan Halper. Basically, a carbon vacuum is a, a form of carbon removal. It's um, a technology called direct air capture, in which these kind of giant fans or vacuums suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and compress it into liquid form and, and usually either bury it underground or use it for some industrial purpose like making cement or plastics. How large scale is it? How much space uh, would you need for this kind of technology? Well, that's that's one of the issues with this. I mean, it takes acres and acres uh, to, to really pull out a meaningful amount of carbon dioxide from the air. And these technologies, you know, they've been around for a while and there have been demonstration projects in various places, including one in, in Menlo Park, California, but the, you know, the land it would take and, and sort of the cost of doing this was just seemed as like too much. And, you know, it was, it was kind of considered earlier on, like maybe a too pie in the sky and undertaking. But, you know, they're scaling up this technology, the, the need, you know, the time to get 
emissions out of the air is is running out and you know there's more creative solutions about okay where can these things be placed and where where is there room for them and how could they be used and you know like other technologies in the climate change space the more r&d money goes into it and and the more urgent bringing them up to scale becomes the prices start to come down so the people behind these direct air capture technologies you know, which are just one piece of the carbon removal puzzle. But the people behind them are confident that the costs are coming down enough that this is a viable technology. You mentioned some of the drawbacks, especially when it comes to the scale of it and how much uh, how much you'd have to do to make it worthwhile. What about the benefits? I, I would assume that just the obvious, you know, dealing with carbon is one. But uh, tell us, so what are some of the benefits? The biggest benefit is that um, you know gets gets emissions out of the atmosphere, and the concern here is that you know California has been and and the rest of the country is doing everything it can, or in, in some places they're doing everything they can to lower the emissions that they're putting into the environment. Obviously, you know, tailpipe emission standards are a huge thing. Power plant, um, you know, burning fossil fuels and, and California's making great strides and pushing past that. But, you know, they're just finding that in the timeline that we have to meet the commitments made in the Paris Accord, they're, they're not going to get there on just reducing emissions alone. And so this, these technologies offer a chance to actually get the final, final piece of this by pulling some emissions out of the atmosphere that are still going to go up there, even, even with all these efforts at you know, reducing emissions we put into the environment through other ways. Now, beyond that, you know, there's, there's hopes that these technologies can be used for other things. The compressed carbon dioxide, you know, it's, it's an expensive technology, but they're talking about, you know, at UCLA, they, they've got a big project, um, they just won, you know, millions of dollars of, of X prize money for converting it into cement. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to make carbon friendly cement. So, you know, the cement making process is really climate intensive, I guess you can call it, or, you know, emissions intensive. And, you know, one way to, to sort of make it more closer to carbon neutral is to take the emissions created when you're making cement, turn them into this compressed liquid form and use them to make, make more cement. Hmm. Is that that ticking clock, Evan? Is that why we're hearing about this machinery more lately? Yes, absolutely. I mean, th- these technologies have been around, as, as I said, for for a while now. But there's been reluctance, especially in California, to engage them because one of the other things that um, you can do with the carbon dioxide is you can use it to inject it underground for pumping oil. And so it's like you, you, you push the you know, carbon dioxide into the, you know, the basin where the oil is, and it pushes the, the oil up to the surface. And so fossil fuel companies have been really interested in these kinds of things. And one of the biggest carbon removal projects or direct air capture projects involving these vacuums is in Texas. And it's, you know, an oil company is involved in it because they're, they're going to use the um, carbon dioxide in exactly that fashion. Other carbon removal technologies that don't involve, you know, the direct air capture of these giant vacuums involve sort of placing technologies on the point of emissions, factories or refineries, say, where they, you know, grab the emissions as they come out of the factory and, you know, push them underground. And environmentalists have been concerned. They say this is not a way that they want to meet the climate goals because it prolongs the life of these factories and, you know, these fossil fuel plants that, uh, you know, a lot of climate activists are trying to move beyond. We're talking to L.A. Times national reporter Evan Halper about his recent piece titled Clocks Running Out on Climate Change. California says it's time for giant carbon vacuums. Um, Evan, how challenging would this be for California if they decided if the state wanted to just say this is what we're going to do. Let's go. Is there anything in place already or is the state just starting from zero on this? The state's pretty much starting from zero, you know, and in terms of how challenging it would be depends how big a scale they want to do this on. There's general agreement from, you know, people at the California Air Resources Board to the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to a big consortium at Stanford that looked into this, that this has to be a piece of what California does, some form of carbon removal, carbon sequestration, whether it's this direct air capture in these big vacuums or, you know, it's, it's these more modest technologies that just sort of capture the emissions as they come out of factories, that the state has to start doing this. It's been something it's sort of been reluctant to engage in for some time. But, you know, everyone cautions that this is not the answer. We're mm-hmm. not going to solve climate change by just putting, you know, giant fans up and down the state. You, you just can't, the, the scale in which you would need to do it on 
And the infrastructure it would require to build all that would just create all the same problems that fossil fuels are already creating. So you just replace one problem with another. But it sounds like smart people are at least pointing to this as an option or at least uh, prompting the state to really look at this. How seriously is California looking at these large scale carbon removal projects? California is looking very seriously. You know, the, the Air Resources Board has, they've had a panel looking at this and companies that, that are intrigued by these technologies are, you know, have been approaching the Air Resources Board and trying to figure out where this could work and how it could work. Stanford and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have done these big studies where they scope out where in the state this could work, where you could put the, the compressed carbon dioxide. They've measured the underground basins. Many of them are in the Central Valley where you could put the carbon dioxide. And they're also looking at places where that have uh, geothermal power that could power some of these carbon dioxide vacuums. A lot of those are up in, in Northern California. On that, putting putting uh, some of it in Central Valley, would storing this underground pose any risks to the residents living nearby? Those who've been studying this say no. They say it's a relatively benign thing. The, the, the bigger concern, uh, you know, the scientists who've been looking at this is whether when you put the carbon dioxide underground, it actually stays there or does it just kind of make its way back into the atmosphere and, and you know, just create emissions all over again. But, you know, this is this is new stuff. And, and the scale that some people are talking about doing this on obviously raises concerns. Anytime you have a new technology, it hasn't been studied that closely. And, you know, and you're talking about big transportation networks and having to truck or rail this stuff from one part of the state to another and maybe pipelines. And, you know, it's it's messy and getting anything permitted in California is complicated, too. So there's all kinds of potential headaches involved with doing this and trying to do it fast. How much of a difference does it make to have this administration, the Biden administration, uh, in in power as opposed to the Trump administration in having California try to deal with these carbon removal goals? It makes a tremendous difference who's in power in Washington because these technologies are all reliant on federal grants, federal loans to scale up the research and development needed and, and to make them viable. I mean, they're not something that that sort of makes sense economically at this point but they you know you start pilot projects and you get some federal money and they bring the cost down to scale i mean many times already the story people compared it to the solar industry uh there was a, a bunch of federal investment that went into the solar industry and now you know as we all know solar is competitive with fossil fuels in, in terms of the cost and, and often even cheaper so a lot of experts scientists entrepreneurs they point to that kind of thing in, in green energy development. And, you know, if you have a interested and enthusiastic partner in the federal government that, that can infuse these efforts with the public funding needed and the subsidies, they can be brought to scale and, and become economically viable. That's LA Times national reporter, Evan Halper. Evan, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, another chapter in our series, Race in L.A. That's where we ask our neighbors who live in L.A. how race and identity factors into how they live here. That's next one. Take two. Continue. Stay with us. Two hundred seventy-four newly built units have sat empty for more than sixty days. I'm Nick Gerda. In my news stories on homelessness, I follow the money, hold officials accountable, and tell you which policies are working, which are not, and how that affects people here in Southern California. I'm proud my reporting for LA has helped fast-track VA housing for veterans in West LA and forced an accounting of millions of taxpayer dollars in Orange County. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and available most places you find your podcasts. I'm Amy Martinez. 
Time now for the latest installment in our Race in L.A. series. Now, in it, we ask Angelinos how race and identity shape their day-to-day lives. The essays written by community contributors and also a few L.A. staffers are published each week. Now, the hope is that these stories fuel meaningful, authentic conversations about our lived experiences as of certain race or ethnicity. This week, contributor Laurel Davis shares her essay titled Black Enough, Mixed Musings on My Skin Color, Hair, and Heritage. The first time I was ever called high yellow to my face was in fifth grade at West Hollywood Elementary School. For two years, a small group of girls taunted me with, you think you cute, and you must be stuck up because of what they called my quote-unquote light-complected skin and my so-called good hair. Such concepts were foreign to me. Number one, I hadn't even thought about my skin color or anyone else's all my years up to that point. So how could I be stuck up about it? Sure, they didn't look quite like me, but they did look like my mother, my uncle, my grandparents, and my cousins, who were my best friends growing up. So I truly didn't understand the hostility, especially because I had never even dealt with it from white folks up to that point. And number two, I hated my frizzy, brittle hair. Most of the time I wore it in a ponytail, except on annual picture day. Over the decades, I've gotten used to the sprinkling of macro and micro aggressions from some of my own people about my skin tone and hair texture. And it's just funny to me at this point, sort of. Of course, being called high yellow in the workplace of all places was unexpected. The only other time something like that had happened was many years prior, when another black co-worker said she wanted to snatch me in a dark alley and chop off all my hair. But here I was, much older and wiser this time, laughing out loud, but also scrambling to show her photos on my phone of my beautiful chocolate family. See, I must have been subconsciously thinking, am I black enough now? Why did I feel I needed to prove to her how black I am? Well, it's probably because who doesn't want to feel the love from the very group of people one rightfully identifies with the most? On the other hand, why do I, a quote-unquote light-complected mulatto, as some would call me, from West Hollywood with a white Jewish stepfather and hair beyond my shoulders identify as black. Well, it's because that's my ethnicity, my culture, and my personal family heritage. If anything good came out of those first taunts during my tween years, they did get me to start thinking about the gravity of racial issues, the unintended implications of my mixed ethnicity, the depth of my black heritage, and the celebration of my increasingly multicultural extended family. Those taunts, coupled with my grandparents' history of racial justice and socio-political activism, and their emphasis on higher education, taught me how to embrace all of these realities together. The fact that I'm light-skinned with so-called good hair, ha, I laugh at that, The fact that I grew up in Tinseltown instead of South LA like some of my classmates during the era of school desegregation. The fact that my black mother never married black. The fact that I have blonde haired family along with my black family and Mexican, Chinese and Native American family too. All of these facts take nothing away from the equally true fact that I am indeed black and black enough. We were certainly black enough to be refused entry at a movie theater in Westwood once. My sister, her black boyfriend, my twin brother and I wanted to take our young Jewish stepbrother to see a movie that was largely filmed in his mother's house. The theater manager refused to accept that we were this boy's family and therefore we were acceptable guardians. Now, if we had been all black or all white, I'm sure we would not have been stopped at the ticket booth. We decried the blatant 
racial discrimination, and left. Of course, I'm not blind or naive. I know the unfortunate legacy of associating color with privilege, or lack thereof, among black people in America. This reaches back to slavery. Some semblance of what actress Gabrielle Union has aptly called the us against us schism remains today. My personal full embracing of my black ethnic and cultural heritage really revealed itself in college. During my sophomore year at UCLA, I went into the black students newspaper office to see if they needed a writer or a proofreader. When I told a young man there why I was there, the first thing he said to me was, man, you're so proper, just like a white girl. To which I immediately replied, well, gosh, golly. <laughs> he laughed, I laughed, we became good friends. I have the fondest memories of those years. I marched, helped build a tent city, and joined the occupation of the administration building in protest of South African apartheid. And just like my grandmother did when she was that age in Detroit, I joined picket lines to protest racial discrimination at places of business in Westwood Village. By this time in my life, I was also developing a thickening skin, albeit still light. Growing up, all four of my own caramel-colored kids experienced color-focused aggressions to one degree or another from fellow Blacks with varying frequency. Growing up in the town they did, with macro and microaggressions coming from whites and fellow Blacks alike, our boys get it. They had to, if for no other reason than for their resiliency and self-determination during those critical teen years. They had to get the talk about what to do in situations with poorly trained or racist cops, skinheads, or angry white ex-girlfriends. They also had to be encouraged for those times they felt that their black friends were more concerned about appearing down or woke at the expense of just being real with themselves and each other. As adults now who have served in the military, where they had to form the strongest brotherhood with some racist counterparts who literally knew nothing about black folks except what they saw in the movies, my sons appreciate all the more who and what they are. One Thanksgiving, when both our boys were home on leave, my grandfather called for them to stand in front of him so he could impart some words of wisdom. Later, I asked my youngest son what his great-granddad had said. And what was his answer? I felt like I was talking to Frederick Douglass. <laughs> if only. I'm glad my sons had that moment. Sure, my grandfather was no Frederick Douglass in terms of influence and international legacy but he still left a legacy, his legacy, as a black man, husband, father, patriarch, civil rights activist, and writer. And that legacy solidifies my black heritage and by extension, that of my sons. I've been teased that my skin tone throws off the lighting in family photos, but I don't get mad because if I did, then I myself would be making my skin more significant than it deserves to be. It is what it is, and that's it. No, it's my genes and my personal family heritage, both of which I am very proud of, that make me what I am. And what I am is more than black enough. That's contributor Laurel Davis sharing parts of her essay. we got to get Laurel back. Laurel was really funny, deep, and also hilarious at the same time. You can read her full piece at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, you know what's all set to happen now that we're all emerging from our coronavirus pandemic caves? That's right. Podcasters scheduling live events where they might ask you to pay to subscribe to their podcast. That's coming up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Josie Huang. LA's Chinatown is a neighborhood in flux. 
I tell the stories of recent Asian American immigrants and families who've been here for generations. I can never forget where I come from. How they navigate being Asian and American. But her landlord has ordered the tenants, mostly Asian immigrants, to move out so she can renovate the property and how that shapes L.A.'s future. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. It has been busy in the podcast world with some of the heaviest hitting names and content, such as Apple, making some pretty big moves. And now that the world is getting vaccinated, podcasters are talking about holding live events again. To discuss this and more, we have Nick Kwa. He pens the Hot Pod column for Vulture. Nick, nice to have you back. Hello, hello. All right. So uh, both Apple and Spotify announced paid podcast subscriptions. What are each of them doing? And uh, why is this a big deal for these companies? Yeah, so uh, let's start with the second question. Um, it's a big deal when it comes to these companies for a few reasons. On the one hand, uh, this is Spotify making yet another big move to become the crucial platform for podcasts everywhere. And on the other hand, when it comes to Apple, um, it's significant because Apple has largely been hands off, I think is the word I'd mm -hmm. use, with podcasting for a long time, despite being the dominant default platform in the space. And so what's also interesting with Apple is that we've been seeing some shifts of late from them uh, when it comes to podcasting. Uh, they've started producing original podcasts as well, though not on Spotify's level. And with this paid subscription stuff, uh, it's just another really big step forward for that platform. So specifically, uh, what this is not is it's not Apple or Spotify creating like a Netflix for podcasts. Okay. It's, it's almost the opposite. They're building... <laughs> tools into their platforms to help podcast publishers and creators build like subscription businesses around their shows. And that's, and that's pretty meaningful. Cause that's what I was going to ask you about that because podcasts traditionally have been ad based. So I was wondering why these moves by Apple and Spotify, what they mean for the broader industry. Yeah. So uh, I personally like to think that it means good things. Um, the fact that podcasting has been advertising based for so long means that it's largely been driven by a need for scale. So Bigger shows, more listeners, means more impressions, means more advertising money. Uh, that's basically the equation. Uh, but with more tools around subscriptions based into, built into these systems, you're basically talking about a situation where more podcasts can exist with smaller audiences, um, provided a good portion of those audiences can be converted into paid subscribers. This could mean uh, better survival rates for more shows. And it could also mean like new kinds of businesses and opportunities for new creators to, ex to have a business and a, and a career in podcasting that wasn't possible before. So I'm wondering then, Nick, will we have a gap then? Because I would imagine subscription services are, are more viable than maybe looking for advertisers. But then on that, wouldn't the big content producers, the big names, wouldn't they be the only ones to be able to get away with that? Yeah, um, there, there's some concerns around that. Uh, you know, it, in a world where many of the structural advantages seem to support uh, the bigs getting bigger yeah. uh, in, all, in all forms, uh, there's definitely a possibility where the bigger publishers are the ones who end up like getting the lion's share of the value here. Uh, but we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful that publishers of all sizes can benefit from this. And I should also say that like, um, you know, paid podcasting isn't a new phenomenon. There's, there's been a lot of shows, uh, some really famous ones that have been able to use uh, platforms like Patreon to build businesses. But this, uh, this would explode the scale quite a bit. And hopefully the value trickles down everywhere. Now, SiriusXM also had a big announcement last uh, night as well that it bought a 99PI. What does that company do and why does the Sirius want it? Right. Uh, that announcement came in last week, um, a little on the earlier side. So 99% Invisible is uh, a decade-old podcast at this point about the hidden world of design that has, over the course of its operations, become a huge symbol for independent podcasters everywhere. Uh, its creator, Roman Mars, was involved in the creation of a, of a podcast collective called Radiotopia, notable for its effort to support uh, independently owned, quirky, non-corporate podcasts. And so SiriusXM, it seems that like they basically bought that show on the one hand because it's really big and it's one of the most famous shows in the business. And on the other hand, uh, I get the sense they're trying to reposition their image and brand within the podcast world. And uh, I imagine buying 99% Visible uh, might help with that. Yeah, because they also bought Stitcher last year, right? Yeah, um, they're definitely uh, buying their way into the podcast business, uh, which is interesting because... 
the podcast industry is still comparatively small compared to the satellite radio business, which of course SiriusXM dominates. Uh, but SiriusXM's distribution has largely been tethered to being included with uh, the car dash- dashboard. And so that's like a, a bit of dependency on car manufacturers. And there's this larger overarching uh, trend or, or, blo- or like growing hype with audio where the indus- entire industry seems to be vaulting towards uh, unexpected futures. So I imagine they're looking at the situation and they figure it's a street as like a prudent move to have a stake in it. We're talking to a podcast industry analyst, Nick Kwa. Now shifting gears, Nick, uh, you've been talking to podcasters about returning to live events. What does uh, that mean in the podcasting world? It means a lot uh, because when it comes to a sizable portion of podcasters, uh, certainly not all, uh, live shows are a strong economic engine, uh, not unlike what is, what's the case for musicians. And so with the country opening back up, uh, vaccinations rolling out, things getting to some version of normal, um, that engine can be wrapped up again. And that's that's really meaningful for for particularly uh, smaller to mid-sized shows. Yeah, especially when everyone's emerging. I, I mentioned earlier how we're all emerging from our pandemic cave. So the podcasters are also <laughs> burrowing out as well. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's it's every it's, you know a lot of people are eager to get back on the road or, and eager to get back in front of audiences. Uh, the, the pandemic had been you know some cause for interesting innovation. We've seen we've seen yeah. some podcasters take to platforms like Zoom uh, <laughs> to, to stage performances, uh, and there's definitely been experiments. There, there's a group of podcasts and music acts that's collaborating on a on a festival um, next uh, oh, wow. next month, which is supposed to integrate this new streaming platform or, or something like that. Um, but I think a lot of people are just uh, happy and eager to go back into traditional uh, venues and uh, maybe drive somebody to indie venues again. When might we really start to see something happening in this space of, of these live events for podcasters? Is, is it going to be when when the rates of vaccination get a lot higher or is, is it just going to start to happen pretty soon? I'm I'm hearing it's happening pretty soon. Oh, wow. I, I know for a couple of shows, it's going to start booking dates around, you know, October at the earliest. Uh, I have also heard that a couple of shows that are just, you know, doing stuff underground. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are already uh, live uh, shows happening right now, to be honest. One more thing, Nick, really quick. I mean, we, we talked about the podcasting business right in the thick of a pandemic. So, we, I mean, that was one reality. Now that we're all coming out of it, I mean, what do you think podcasting will look like and sound like uh, post-pandemic? That's a really good question. Um, well, first of all, I think a lot of people say that it'll sound better because people can start recording in actual studios uh, more frequently <laughs> again, true. as opposed yes, to true. in their closets. <laughs> but um, it's a—it's actually it's some point of anxiety and some point of excitement. I think a lot of people really want to stick stick with podcasting. People, uh, you know, celebrities who are you know picked it up for the first time. I think that has become interesting to them. But the big question is sort of where the listenership goes because. Uh, I think a lot of people will want to go back out and and have alternative forms of entertainment, but um, maybe they'll take podcasting with them. And that's that's the big question everybody's kind of uh, looking out for. That's Nick Kwa, podcast industry analyst and author of the Hot Pod column for Vulture. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. I tweet out what's coming up on the show that day. So if you log on, you'll know exactly what's happening on Take Two and when it is happening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2, Marketplace is next all seven states on the colorado river may have to cut back water but not everyone agrees on how from coloradans who blame others for the crisis there continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create to farmers who may lose their livelihoods we don't want to cut equal with everybody else will they reach a deal in time Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.